Okay, Bruchem Abam, welcome everyone. We welcome all the Torah Anytime viewers, and this week's share is being sponsored by Mishpachas Pavarsky. Okay, and this week's parasha is the beginning of Sefer Shemais. And the main character in Pasha Shemais and Sefer Shemais, of course, is none other than Moshe Rabbeinu. So we're going to uh, be discussing a little bit who was Moshe Rabbeinu and what were the ingredients that went into uh, making Moshe Rabbeinu who he was. No, Moshe Rabbeinu is not just not born in a vacuum. There had to have been many, many elements that went into his uh, development, and we're going to, Mirza Hashem, discuss those in Yonim that went into the makeup of Moshe Rabbeinu. And we begin with the comment of the Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra, of course, is one of the earliest commentators on Chumash. Ibn Ezra was born in the year 1089, the 11th century, and he was born in Spain. He passed away in 1164. Ibn Ezra was a brilliant Torah scholar. He was very successful in his learning, and he mastered many disciplines, astronomy, the sciences, grammar. But there was one area that Ibn Ezra had no success, and that is in business. And all of his business, business ventures were abysmal failures. Anything he went into, whatever he put his hands on, did not work out. He was not successful in business. Because of certain persecutions, he had to flee together with his son Yitzchak. He went into exile. And while in Rome, he wrote his commentary on the Chumash. Very interesting. He wrote his commentary on the Chumash while in Rome. Meanwhile, his son Yitzchak, he flees to Baghdad, where unfortunately... Uh, Ibn Ezra receives word that his son converted to uh, Islam and then he passed away. And Ibn Ezra discovers this after his son passes away, he discovers the double tragedy. Number one, his son, his son converted and number two, his son passed away. But later on his son wrote a, um, wrote a poem vindicating himself that he never meant to convert to Islam. He merely orally professed to accept Muhammad. And the Rambam's opinion is, under duress, under threat of death, it's permitted to accept, uh, to accept Islam because it's not considered idolatry. But nevertheless, uh, his son Yitzchak maintained that he never really uh, converted to Islam. And uh, anyway, the Ibn Ezra says something very interesting. He says, and I'll translate, that God's plans are very deep. Who could really get to the bottom and plummet the depth of God's plans. And what the Ibn Ezra wants to know is why did Hashem arrange things that Moshe Rabbeinu should grow up in the palace of Parai? Right? He didn't necessarily grow up in uh, the Cheder, in, in Be'a Sha'arim. He, uh, he didn't necessarily grow up in the purest environment. He grew up in the palace of Parai. Says Ibn Ezra, he, Moshe Rabbeinu grew up in Parai's palace for a very important purpose. And that is Moshe Rabbeinu would later become the leader of the Jewish people. To be a leader, you have to have a certain personality. You have to have a certain bearing. You have to have royal bearing. You, have to, you can't have a slave mentality. You can't have a lowly mentality and um, makeup. You have, to be, you have to have nobility, royalty to be a leader. And therefore, God specifically knew if He's going to grow up among all the other Jews who are slaves and have a very low mentality, he's not going to develop the character necessary to be a leader. And therefore, the Rebbe Shalom specifically sort of handpicked him and he said, you, over here, you go into Paro's palace, 
you learn how to be royal, how to be noble, and then we'll, that's how Hashem groomed, so to speak, Moshe Rabbeinu for the job. Another reason, says Ibn Ezra, is because if Moshe Rabbeinu would have grown up among the rest of Klal Yisrael, and they would have grown up together, they would have played stickball together, you know, they would have played cards together, they would have played kugelach together, all the different games that the kids play. Then Moshe Rabbeinu grows up, and, uh, and Yankel says, uh, Moshe, I remember you, and you know, when you misbehaved in class, and the teacher kicked you out, and I remember you during recess, and I remember you, right, when your mother yelled at you for not finishing your peas at supper, right, so people are going to lose a certain element of respect for Moshe Rabbeinu. They say, you know, even the biggest tzaddikim, nobody appreciates them until they pass away. Right? Even the Chavetz Chaim, even the, I know I know someone in the neighborhood, his father grew up in Radin with the granat from Naftali Trap and the Chavetz Chaim. Everyone knows they're tzaddikim, but when you're going to the same bathhouse as them, and you see their flesh and blood like you are, and they have to take a shower just like you, you lose a certain amount of respect. It's just, it's just human nature. And therefore, what Hashem did was Hashem said, Moshe, you are going to grow up away from the rest of the Jewish people. They're not going to know what your childhood was like. They're never going to see you misbehave. They're never going to see any of your development. And this way, the, they will have the utmost respect for you at the time that you become the leader. Says Ibn Ezra, these are two of the reasons why Moshe Rabbeinu grew up in the palace of the king. Okay. In my mind, there's another aspect why Moshe Rabbeinu grew up in the king's palace. There was a Navi by the name of Ovadia. Ovadia, anybody know how many prophecies did Ovadia say in his career? One. Sefer Ovadia is one parak long. We read the whole Sefer as the Haftar of Parshas Vayishlach. And Ovadia said one prophecy. You know what that is? One day, Edom is going to be destroyed. Esav is going to be completely obliterated. And the Gemara Masech Sanhedrin says, Why was Ovadia chosen? to speak nevuah, to speak prophecy about the downfall of Edom, says the Gemara in Sanhedrin, because Ovadia grew up among two wicked people. Who were they? Achav and Izevel. Achav, the wicked king Achav, the wicked queen Izevel. And he didn't learn from their evil ways. Esav Harasha grew up among two tzaddikim, Yitzchak and Rivka. And he didn't learn from their evil ways. Says the Gemara, let Ovadia from their good ways. Thank you. Ka says the Gemara in Sanhedrin, let Ovadia, who did not learn from the evil ways of Achav and Izevel, speak about the downfall of Esav, who did not learn from the good ways of Yitzchak and Rivka. And the Gemara says further, Ovadia descended, not descended, Ovadia himself was a ger. He was a convert. From which nation? Edom. He was an Edomite ger. And he himself speaks about the downfall of Edom. Says the Gemara, how ironic. If you look at number two on the fourth line, Bahainu da Amri Inshi, this is what people say. Remember there was a singer, Jewish singer, Matas Yahu? He's still, He's still a singer. Okay? You ever hear? He has a song. From the forest itself comes... The hammer for the axe. From, from the handle for the axe. Yeah, you remember that? 
from the sorry, actually Tanya took it from the Gemara. <laughs> what? I can't get into that right now. But but um, the Gemara he's quoting uh, actually Andrew saying he's quoting Tanya, but actually the Tanya got it from the Gemara Masahla Sanhedrin. The Gemara in Sanhedrin says I'll tell you after how I know this. But the Gemara in Sanhedrin, the Gemara in Sanhedrin says from the forest itself comes the handle for the axe. What does this mean? The Gemara points out the irony. Here you have this uh, woodsman. He chops down the whole forest. And think of the irony of the fact, where did the handle of the axe come from? It came from that very forest. Right? Where did he get the wood for the handle? He cut down a tree in the past. He made a handle for the axe. And from this forest itself came the handle for the axe. Says the Gemara, look at Ovadia. From Edom themselves came the one who prophesied about the downfall of Edom. So, but where did Edom come from? From Tutadikim. Okay, but that's, a sep- that's a that's a so. But so think about the irony of Moshe Rabbeinu. Remember, Paro had a decree. Paro had a a gezera. The gezera was called Haben Hayilod Hayorat Any boy. We got to throw into the river. Why? Because I see, I have reports through my astrological experts that the Jewish Savior is going to be born. And we got to throw him into the river. So all the boys have to be killed. So what happens? Paro's own daughter sees a Jewish boy, brings him into Paro's house. Who pays for Moshe Rabbeinu's diapers? Who pays for his formula? Who pays for his food? Who pays for his rent? Who pays for his development? Who pays for his college tuition? Paro himself, from the, from the forest itself comes the handle for the axe. What's this concept? From the forest itself comes the handle of the axe. It's a concept in Hashkacha Pratis. God controls the world. We have no control over anything. If God wants something to happen, there's no way to frustrate it. You think you're going to get involved and try to frustrate God's plans? God says, you're going to frustrate my plans? Ha! Huh? I will have you be the one to carry out my plans. Paro, you want to stop the, the Savior from being born? Yeah, fine, no problem. All the Jewish boys should be thrown in the river. You will be the one who raises the Jewish baby, this, the Savior. And not only that, like we saw in the Ibn Ezra, this baby specifically is born in your house. Why? Because if he would be born elsewhere, he wouldn't develop the royal bearing necessary to be the leader of Klal So at the end of the day, who is responsible for Moshe Rabbeinu? Paro. And who is trying to destroy Moshe? Paroi. From the forest itself comes the handle for the axe. I don't think there's any greater example than Moshe Rabbeinu himself. Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about Moshe coming to the world. Besides the fact that the Egyptian astrologers knew Moshe was going to come to the world, a Jewish prophetess knew that Moshe was going to come to the world. And who is that? Miriam Hanaviah. Miriam had a nevuah that Moshe Rabbeinu was going to be born. The Gemara tells us in the Megillah about the fact that after God split the uh, Yamsuf, so what happened? It says, Vatikach Miriam Hanaviyah Achos Aharon, that uh, Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took drums and she took musical instruments and she started to play. And the Gemara asks, What do you mean she's the sister of Aaron? She's the sister of Moshe. Why only the sister of Aaron? Says the Gemara, because she was a Neviah well before Moshe was born. Even when Aaron HaKohen was her only brother, she was already a, nevu- a Nevi'ah. What Nevi'ah did she say? She said to her parents, 
that you're going to have a son who's going to save Klal Yisrael. And the Gemara says, when Moshe Rabbeinu was born, the whole house filled up with light. And Amram comes running to Miriam and he says, Miriam, your prophecy has come true. Then a few months later, when they threw Moshe into the river, Amram comes to his daughter and he smacks her and he said, now what's going to happen with your prophecy? And that's why the Pasuk says that Miriam stood from afar to figure out what's going to happen. Not just what's going to happen to Moshe, but what's going to happen to her prophecy. Okay. What day of the year was Moshe Rabbeinu born? Zainada. Okay. And they hid Moshe Rabbeinu for how long? Three months. They hid him for three months. So it comes out, says the Cheskuni, if you make a calculation, if Moshe was born on Zainada, and they hid him for three months until they put him into the river. What day did they put him in the river? Well, you have 23 days in Adar, and then you have the month of Nisan, and the month of Iyar, and six days in Sivan, the sixth day of Sivan. Shavuos. Shavuos. Says the Cheskuni, what day was Moshe Benu saved? Shavuos. Chizkuni points out the day that Moshe was destined to give the Torah watched over him. Now Rav Mordechai Benet points out an amazing thing. We know in Shavuos there's a minog to decorate the shul. Right? With flowers, grass, plants. So everybody thinks why. What did we learn in kindergarten? Harsinai was beautiful with gardens and trees and flowers. The only problem with that is now you can look in, in the, all the, this Tarsha Peh, nowhere does it say that all of a sudden Har Sinai became the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens. <laughs> right? So what's this custom of decorating the shul? Says Rav Mordechai Benet, you know where the custom comes from? It has absolutely nothing to do with Har Sinai. Nothing at all. It has everything to do with the fact that Shavuos is the day that Moshe Rabbeinu was saved by Basi Abbas Paro. Where was Moshe put? In the river, where? Besuf, in the grass. So to commemorate the miracle of Moshe being saved, we decorate the shul. Nothing to do with Harsinai at all. Nothing to do with Harsinai. Everything to do with Moshe being put on the yamsuf, into the reeds, into the grass. That's what Mordechai Benet says. Okay, we move on. What did Moshe Rabbeinu do for a living? He sold used cars. You know, what did he do? He's a prince. Why do you need Rabbeinu. He's our Rebbe. He's our teacher. Right? That, that's what he did. He was our Rebbe. To be a good Rebbe, what's the most important quality? You've got to teach, right? If, if, you can, if you're not teaching anything, you know, patience. Even physical quality. Tall, short. You've got to speak clearly. If you can't speak clearly then you can't teach because nobody's going to have any clue what you're saying, right? You could be the smartest person in the world. If you can't talk straight, right? If you can't speak clearly, nobody's going to have any clue what you're talking about. So if you were God and you were creating Moshe Rabbeinu, which quality would you give him that he should be the most proficient in? Speech. You would think if Hashem is creating Moshe, Hashem should say, Moshe, I am going to make you the best speaker who ever lived. You're going to have a combination of, you know, all the great speakers today. I'm not going to mention any, right? It'll be a combination of all of them. You'll have this one's ability to tell a story and that one's, 
um, drama, and right, you'll have a combination of all the great speakers. And yet, we know one thing that Moshe Rabbeinu was great in all areas except he couldn't speak. He was kvad peh, kvad lashon. His mouth was heavy, his tongue was heavy. What's up with that? Why would Hashem make of all qualities that Moshe Rabbeinu should not speak well? We once spoke out very, um, a reason from the Vilna Gain. Tonight we're going to speak out the reason of the Ran. We all know you can have a great speaker. You ever go to a drasha? You're sitting there for an hour. You're spellbound. You can't move. You're hanging on to every word. Wow! The speech is over. Oh, whoa! You're blown away. What did he speak about? Um, uh, um, I don't really remember. I'm not sure. So what, did, what did he speak about? I, I'm not sure. What, I, I don't remember. You could ask everyone in the room. No one has any clue what the guy spoke about. And you know why? Because the guy didn't say one thing. He didn't say anything. He just spoke in, with drama and flair. And he didn't say anything substantive, right? There's no information being given over. So how is everyone sitting there spellbound? The answer is because you could sell anything. You could sell anything. You could convince. A good speaker could sell anything. Right? Obama. <laughs> <laughs> but even, a, right, even a bad speaker could sell anything. But a good speaker certainly could sell anything. You could make, you could spin tales of, of Boba Maisa's of Nivra, and people will accept it. And on the other hand, you could have the biggest Hamil Chacham in the world, the biggest Sadik, and he could be saying the most precious jewels, and no one's interested. Why? Because he doesn't speak well. Had Moshe Rabbeinu been a good speaker, you know what people would have said? That you know why we accepted the Torah? Because Moshe was so eloquent, he was such a good speaker, he had such a smooth tongue. That the Jews fell for it. And he sweet-talked them. He talked them into accepting the Torah. And therefore, let nobody say that Moshe Rabbeinu talked us into it. God said, Moshe, you'll be the most humble man who ever lived. The biggest Yare Shamayim. The biggest Baal Chesed. The greatest in all attributes, attributes, but a lousy speaker. Why? So let nobody say that we accepted the Torah because of Moshe's speaking capabilities. That's what the Ran says. That's what the man says. Okay. Now, Rabbi Sai, fasten your seatbelts. I'm about to tell you a story. Okay, and I'll, I'll preface with the fact that this is a very controversial story. And we'll, we'll discuss it more at length after we finish. The story comes from the commentary of the Tfaris Yisrael on Masachta Kedushin. And the Tfaris Yisrael was one of the G'day Lehu He was a contemporary of Rabbi Akiva Eger. And... The Tzfaris Yisrael brings down the following story that he found written down somewhere. It's a story about Moshe Rabbeinu. When Moshe Rabbeinu took Bnei Yisrael out of Mitzrayim, the world was frightened. They were very scared of him. Here you have a guy. He split the sea. He turned all the water into blood. He made Egypt turn black. He uh, killed all the firstborn. This guy is Superman. Superpowers. And... and uh, there was a certain Arab king. We don't know exactly whether he maybe is the king of Saudi Arabia, maybe he's the king of Libya. We don't know exactly which Arab nation he was the king of. Was, there was a certain Arab king. He wanted to figure out who is this Moshe guy? What's he all about? Well, you know, what's up with this Moshe guy? So he sent an artisan to sneak into the Jewish camp and paint a portrait of Moshe Rabbeinu. So he sneaks into the camp and he paints a portrait of Moshe, and he comes back to the king. 
the king looks at the picture and he calls all of his experts. You know, there's a certain type of wisdom called Chachmas HaParzov. You look at the face, you look at the forehead, you look at the wrinkles, right? You look at the blood vessels, right? You know, so there's some people, they can look at you, they know everything about you. Obviously, they, somebody who knows wouldn't reveal to their friend that they could look at the person and know everything about them. No, I'm just joking. But, <laughs> but those who know, those who know, they know. They could look at someone and tell them everything about them. So, he gathered together all of his uh, forehead readers and they're staring at this picture of Moshe Rabbeinu and they're flabbergasted. And they all in unison say to the king, Mr. King, we have to tell you that it's unanimous, that this, king, that this picture is a picture of a man who has every bad character trait imaginable for a human being to have. He is arrogant, he loves money, he is cruel, every bad character trait possible this individual has. And the king they couldn't understand. The king got very angry. He said, what, you're mocking me? This is a picture of Moses. You're mocking me? How is this possible? So they said, uh, what can we tell you? The artist obviously made a mistake. He obviously drew a uh, wrong rendition of Moshe Rabbeinu. The king didn't know what to do because of course he had hired the best artist in the world. So he decides he himself is going to go to the Jewish camp in the desert and take a look at Moshe Rabbeinu himself. So he makes the trip. He goes on his jeep into the desert, on his camels. He sneaks in undercover and he comes into the Jewish camp and he sees Moshe Rabbeinu, he sees a man of God, uh, like a malach, like an angel. He says, Moses, I want to have a word with you. So Moshe Rabbeinu takes him into the tent. He looks at Moshe. He looks at his picture. He lines the two up. And it's exact. It's exact. The artist had drawn an exact replica of Moshe Rabbeinu. And then this king almost has a heart attack. And he says... I don't understand, Moshe. I have, let me tell you the story. I hired an artist to take a picture, to draw a picture of you. I spoke to my uh, physiognomists, and they all claim that the meaning of your facial features is that you're a very low, bad character. And, and yet I see you've performed the greatest miracles in history. Says Moshe Rabbeinu, I want to tell you that the artist's rendition is a precise replica of me. That's what I look like. Even on a good day, that's what I look like. And I have to tell you, your physiognomists are exactly right. I was born with every bad character trait possible. Anger, arrogance, cruelty. And if I wasn't born with bad character, then what would be the big deal that I'm such a big tzaddik? So I'm just doing what I was created to do. No, I was born with every bad character trait, and I overcame and conquered every bad character trait to the point where now every good character trait is second nature to me. So what Moshe did Chuba, according to He corrected himself, he worked on himself, <coughs> and he incorporated into his personality every good character trait. So Moshe Abinu was born the worst person who ever lived, according to the Tvaris Yisrael. Born. Born. That's the end of the story. That's what the first Yisrael is one of the classic commentaries on Mishnayas.
just from the fact that the Tiferes Yisro brings down such a story and accepts it as true that this is the, the history of Moshe Rabbeinu, it's a tremendous chizuk for us, a tremendous musaf for us, that here it's possible to reach the highest level that any human being has ever, le- has ever reached, coming from the lowest possible level. Okay? So the Tzfaris Yisrael accepts the idea that it's possible for a human being to start off with bad, right? People say, me? I'm never going to become anything. I'm born an angry guy. Every time somebody steps on my toe, I want to, you know, knock him out. That's how I am. That's how I'm always going to be. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not interested in helping people. That's how I was born. I can't change. First, Yisrael says, no, Moshe, no one was ever born with worse character, according to the Tzfaris Yisrael, as Moshe, and he reached the highest level that any human being... What? Yeah. Yeah. That's what the first Yisrael is saying. By the way, this story is brought down in many Hasidish Svaran. I'll just tell you that this is a very controversial story. When the Gdolim received the story, a whole conscious was written regarding this story, and, um, and the Gdolim are very, uh, very against the story, that this story is not true. That we don't accept the story as the factual uh, history of Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, one of the main... One of the main questions on this story is the fact that we know when Moshe Rabbeinu was born, the whole house filled up with light. But now, yeah, what? My question is... No, he was born. That's what he's saying. He was born. He was inborn character. Inborn character. So, why is the whole house filled up with light? If you have a kid over here who naturally is inclined to every bad character trait, why in the world is the whole house filled up with light? And we may add that there's another Medrash that when Moshe was born, the Shechino, Basya Bas Paro, it says, Vatir Ehu, she saw Heivav, she saw the name, she saw God was with him. What was God doing with this baby if this baby was born with all these bad character? And in general, Rabbi Shor Leib Diskin, the Aderes, they all say this story is not true. And, she said it was good. And one of the main claims in this contrast that was written specifically against this story, it says, that's why the Torah specifically says, they saw he was good. Right? When Moshe Rabbeinu was born, it says he was good. What do you mean that he was good? He was born good, not bad, like the first of all is saying. In any event, the uh, general tradition is that this is not a true story, and the historians will tell you this is actually from Christian mythology, and it crept into, uh, crept into Jewish thought. But, well, at the end of the day... a very important uh, question. Like, yeah. Uh, Christianity influenced the uh, Jewish. Uh, uh, it makes sense. I'm not going there right now, but <laughs> he, you can find it not only in this story, but many other stuff. Whatever it is, this the Tzvarsisol was certainly a gadol, and we can glean something from what he's saying, and that is that means in the eyes of this gadol, it is possible for a human being to start off on a very, very low level, the worst, the big, the most wicked level, and climb to the highest level. Whether this story is true or not, this is not a generally accepted uh, medrash. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. I'll just point out, point out something very interesting. What, well, on the words, Vatera oso kitov, she saw he was good. What does Rashi say? The whole house filled up with light. Now the stipler, the stipler going, as was his practice, during leaning, he would come up with gematrias. He wouldn't uh, work on it. 
Reb Chaim Kenevsky once asked him, you know, should I also, you know, Reb Chaim, uh, uh, the stipler has in the back of one of his farm all kinds of gematrias, all kinds of numerical values of things. So Reb Chaim Kenevsky said, should I also, you know, write about this? Chesayim uh, said, no, I don't work on it. It just comes to me during laning. When I hear the laning, it just comes to me. So you don't, you don't spend time on it. But in any event, the stipler says an amazing thing. When Rashi says, Batera oso kitov, and which means the whole house got filled up with light, the gematria of the parish of Rashi is the gematria of that Pasuk. In other words, the numerical value of the words, Vatera, Oso, Kitov, she saw he was good, is th- that when he was born, the house filled up with light. It's an amazing thing that you find very often that if you take the numerical value of the words, it's the same as the numerical value of the commentary of Rashi. It's an amazing thing. Wow. So, just a uh, different little bit... Uh... Yeah. The subject. So the stapler also used to do gematria on the side, like Balatorim also used to do it on the side. It like it hit, it hit him. It came it to him. They don't do that as a subject. Not yet, not the stapler. Also Balatorim didn't do it. He just. I don't assume. I, it hit him. It came to him. Yeah. Like you know, the Arizal says this week's parsha says um, we say in in Aminim Shahu Dayan. MS, everyone believes God is the true judge. Hehagoy, he is called Aleph He Yud He in this week's parasha, right? Eh, and then yeah. Asher, right? Eh. What's the numerical value of Aleph He Yud He? 21. Eh, eh, and then yeah, times eh, and then yeah, 21 times 21 is. 441, MS. Everyone believes he's the guy. Die in MS. True. What? Okay, fine. What is Moshe Rabbeinu's name? How many names did he have? 17. Some matter says 7, some 10. He had many names. One name he had was Yared. Yared because he brought the Torah down from heaven. One name was Chever. He connected God with uh, B'nai Yisrael. One name was Yekusiel. Avigdar, the father of all of those who made fences. And yet God says, of all the names that I'm going to call you, I will only use the name that Basia called you. Actually, there's no Hebrew name Basia. The name is Bisya. Look in Divrei Hayamim, Bisya. Basia is a made-up name. But that's a separate thing. What do you mean made-up name? In the Chumash it's wrote Basia, no? No. How we, spell, how we pronounce it? Doesn't say. Doesn't say. Doesn't say. Okay. But anyway, that's a separate shmuz. Okay. So, Hashem said, "I will name you the name. I will give you the name that Basia called you, that Bisya called you. What's Bisya's? What name? What? What name did Bisya call him? Moshe. So just think about it for a second. What's a name? What? What? What is the concept of a name? The concept of a name is we know that when, uh, when God created Adam HaRishon, so the angels see Adam, they say to God, what is this guy? What is this creature? So God said, you know, don't mess with him. He is greater than you. He's smarter than you. So the Malachim said, how is he smarter than us? So Hashem took all the animals in front of the Malachim, and Hashem said, what's that? He said, I don't know. What should we name this? Malachim said, I don't know. Then he passed it in front of uh, Adam. Adam said, this is a gamal, this is a, a camel, this is a sus, this is a horse. Malachim said, whoa, how do you know? And then, Adam, and then God said, what's your name? 
Adam said, my name is Adam. Malachim were floored. And then Hashem said, what's my name? And Adam said, you're Adai, and then Nai. Because you're the master of everything. So what exactly, what, what was the big Chachma that Adam Arisha knew? This was a horse, right? Even my kid knows this is a horse, right? Nay, everybody knows. A uh, cow, this is a cow, this is a cat. Because in Hebrew, you see, in all other languages, language is not of essence. It's merely an agreed-upon term. Why? In English, why is this a cup? Because people got together and they agreed to call this a cup. Not that the letters C-U-P identify and describe the essence of what this is. It's just everybody agrees to call it a cup. In Hebrew, every Hebrew name is not just an agreed-upon name. It's a word that, that sums up and describes the essence of that thing. The word sus in Hebrew... If you knew the Hebrew, the secrets of the Hebrew letters and words, the word sus describes the essence of a horse. The words gamal describe the essence of a camel. And this was a wisdom that Adam Rishon had. Even the Malachim, with their celestial intelligence, they could not sum up what this thing is to give it a name. Okay, so that's what a name is. A name is something that sums up the essence of something. So if you were to sum up, what is Moshe Rabbeinu? I would have called him Yared. He brought the Torah down from heaven. Or Avigdar. He made all the fences around the Torah. What name does God say? I'm going to call you the name that Bisya called you. What's that? Moshe. Moshe. You know what Moshe means? Moshe means to schlep. To schlep out. Right? Oh, Basya said, let me call you Schlepper. Why? Because I schlepped you out of the water. So God said, of all the names that you have, I like the name that Bisya gave you. I mean... What was so great about that name? First of all, the name has nothing to do with Moshe. It's all about Bisya. She slept Moshe. She said, since I slept you, I'm going to call you Schlepper. Yeah, I mean, well, what kind of name is that? What kind of name? Says Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, a very interesting concept. A Jewish leader of all qualities, needs to have the quality of Mesiras Nefesh. Mesiras Nefesh means self-sacrifice. You have to sacrifice your own comforts for the people. That's the most important quality. And that's what Moshe Rabbeinu had to do. He sacrificed himself, his own family, his own comforts. He had to separate from his wife. He had to lead the Jewish people, God said, they're bothersome. They're going to torture you. They're going to make your life miserable. The Jewish people are tough to deal with, God says. But Moshe Rabbeinu took it upon himself. He sacrificed. Where did he get this power of self-sacrifice from? Where did he get the ability to be Moshe Nefesh from? Says of Chaim Shalavetz, whatever you give to someone enters them. Very interesting concept. In other words, if I'm going to be very kind and generous to you, that generosity and kindness will enter you and become part of you. You give your kid something with <coughs> generosity, that, those feelings enter their bones. Basia Basparo was saving Moshe Rabbeinu. But she was risking her life because she knew her father made a rule that if you save any Jewish kid, that's the end of you. It's a, it's a law of the land. Basia Basparo was being Moshe Nefesh to save Moshe by schlepping him out of the water. By her being Moser Nefesh, giving up or sacrificing herself for Moshe, that koach of Masiras Nefesh 
entered the fabric of Moshe Rabbeinu and he became someone who was able to be Moser Nefesh for other people, to sacrifice for other people. And therefore, says Uchayim Shalavetz, of all the names that define who Moshe Rabbeinu was, the name Moshe is the most apt description. Why? Because of all of his qualities, the quality that he needed and he excelled in more than anything else was his sacrifice for Kalah Yisrael. And that was given to him because she schlepped him out of the water and she risked her life to schlep him out, that Koach entered Moshe Rabbeinu and became part of his personality. Okay. We move on to another, another thing. A very interesting point by the Raubag. Who did Moshe Rabbeinu marry? Sipora. The Raubag points out that Sipora was not exactly the best catch on the market. First of all, her father wasn't even Jewish. Her father was a priest for other religions. I mean, what? Moshe Rabbeinu... You know, a guy like Moshe Rabbeinu, he could get a good shilich, you know, he could get. She go, go to the, the heads of the seminary and pick out the, who he wants. The only thing is he couldn't, right? Because he had to run away. Power was after him. So Moshe Rabbeinu runs away to a, a different land. And what could he do, says Rabag? He marries Tzipora. What do you see from here? The Rabag says, you know what you see from here? That in life, if you can't get the best you have to learn how to settle for second best. You can't always get the best. Sometimes the best is not available. Sometimes you can't get the best shidduch, the best job, the best whatever. So you might think, oh, if I'm not going to get the best, if I'm not going to get the best job, then I'm not working. If I'm not going right? to do it at all. Says Rabag, we see from the marriage of Moshe Rabbeinu, that when you can't get perfection, you need to be able to settle for second best. And if not that, then third best. But you have to learn that if you can't get perfection, you have to learn how to settle. Very interesting lesson from Moshe Rabbeinu. And everything, and everything in life. But, but this is uh, very interesting. You're allowed to compromise. and uh... You compromise. If you can't, you have to learn how to compromise. So she wasn't sure. She was a Bashar. Was she the Basharat? I'll tell you something very interesting about Basharat. Once we're on the topic. In the times of uh, in the times of Tanakh, how many women could you get married to? Eighteen. Eighteen, right, thank you. Eighteen. So one second. So that means how many Basharats did you have? Eighteen. Says so Victor Miller. Chances are whoever you're marrying is one of the eighteen Basharats, right? <laughs> I mean, what? You didn't get one of the 18? No, come on. That's ridiculous. Whoever it's going to be, it's going to be one of the 18. I heard it from, with my own ears. Okay. Let's move on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, we'll end, up, we'll end with the following. The level of Nevoah Moshe Rabbeinu was greater than anybody else's Nevoah. How do you become a Navi? Right? In case anybody was wondering, anybody wanted to be a Navi, there are two ways of becoming a Navi. Either you can make uh, like three miracles happen on three occasions. Okay, you're listening carefully. You know, if you want to be, you make three miracles happen, and uh, you know, and you, you predict something three times. Right? I say to the Hashem, this Shabbos, the roof's going to open, and and uh, candies are going to come down, and it happens. That that's one. 
Okay, that's fine. Mark, Mark right? You heard about it? No. Or if a, uh, a Navi, who's already uh, accepted Navi, gives you smicha, he says, you know, you're a Navi, fine, so then you're a Navi. Moshe Rabbeinu's level of Navua was different than all of these regular levels of Navua. Why? Because we ourselves saw God speak to Moshe. Now, how could you see God speak to Moshe? So the Rambam writes that God made every Jew at the time of Harsinai a prophet themselves. And we were able to see, we put on our Nevuah binoculars, we saw God speak to Moshe. So this was different than any other prophecy. All other prophecies, we sort of had to rely on the fact that this miracle that the Navi is making is a legit miracle, and we accepted him. But no, never did we ever see God speak to a Navi except by Moshe Rabbeinu. We saw with our own eyes God spoke to Moshe. Says the Meshachachma, it's really a, a phenomenal question. God tells Moshe, okay, now that the Jews saw me speak to you, they, will be, they have to believe in you forever. Which means there's a mitzvah in the Torah, from the time the Torah was given, that we have to believe in Moshe Rabbeinu. Whatever he tells us, we have to accept that God told him. Asks the Meshachachma. One second. Was Moshe Rabbeinu a human being? Yeah. Yeah, right. Did he eat? He went home at night, he had supper, right? Except those 40 days. He ate, he drank, he slept. He was a human being. He was born, he passed away. Did Moshe Rabbeinu have free choice? Of course. If you're a human being, he's not. A... So I have a question, says Moshe Chachma. How could God command Bnei Israel that we have to listen to Moshe? But Moshe has free choice. And maybe Moshe, after he receives the Torah from God, will choose evil and he'll add to the Torah on his own. It's the same thing with the Rabbanim. You have to listen to all the, the Rabbanim as well. All the mitzvahs of the Rabbanim could use the same kind of... Uh... If you have a Sanhedrin, so you have, you have a majority, but nowhere does it say that we have to listen to the Chachamim. Let's say they tell us to violate the Torah, you don't have to listen. And there's no mitzvah that God says, listen to a specific person. The mitzvah is, listen to the body of the Sanhedrin. So, fine. So we'll accept the fact that the majority of the Sanhedrin won't veer off. But how, if Moshe, does Moshe Rabbeinu have free will? We find in Tanakh, there was a Navi by the name of Hananiah ben Yoezer. He started off as a good Navi, and he went bad. He turned sour. So how could Hashem tell B'nai Yisrael, you Jews... You're commanded always to listen to Moshe. What do you mean always listen to Moshe? Moshe has free choice. Maybe Moshe will choose to become a chas v'shalom, chas v'chaliva, a rush at the end of his life. How can Hashem command us? We have to listen to Moshe. Maybe Moshe will veer off. He has free choice. Can Moshe sin? Of course he could sin. So if he could sin, then how, why we, how could God require us to listen to him? I don't, I don't. Right? Every human being is commanded, don't trust in yourself. You never know. Until you leave this world, you can't trust that you're a tzaddik. Maybe you'll veer off. So how could God command Kalal Yisrael to listen to Moshe? Says the Meshachachma, an amazing answer. That from the moment that God gave Moshe Rabbeinu the Torah, He took away His free will. He took away His Bechira. He took... He, God took away his free choice and Moshe Rabbeinu became like an angel. By the way, an angel could sin. An angel also, it's a separate discussion, an angel has free choice. 
but he's still mukhrah, he's compelled, because of his understanding of God, he's compelled to do good. Says the Meshachachma, from the moment the Torah was given, God took away the free choice of Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu no longer had free choice to choose evil. And that's how God could command, that we are required to listen to Moshe. Not because we're predicting the fact that Moshe will not veer off, it's because God guaranteed in the words, God took away Moshe's free choice, and now Moshe has become like a Malach Hashem, and as we started off the Shia Moshe Rabbeinu started off in the house of Paro, he started off in Paro's palace, developing the royal bearings, he started off in the house of the one who was out to get him, and he ends his career on the highest pinnacle, like a Malach Hashem Tzavakos Have a good evening.